Well, before we dive in, we want to read a passage of Scripture together. And uh, this is, of course, from the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to be starting at Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read two verses there, and then jump to Hebrews chapter 4 and begin reading at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the writer says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Then jumping down to chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God... Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. And so Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could, have, who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together, that we have the freedom to do this. And in that freedom, we can express our love, our appreciation, our gratitude to you. We can worship you. And we would pray that now in this part of our worship, you would speak to us from your word in the power of your Holy Spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each week I've begun by saying that uh, Hebrews is a book that, of course, is written to Christians experiencing persecution, Christians who are experiencing difficulties of various kinds, hardships, and so, to such a degree that th some of them are actually in danger of giving up the faith, walking away. Uh, in the verses that we read this morning, we come to one of the harsh realities of life, really, and that is that life lived this side of heaven is just difficult. I mean, it's just, it's just a struggle. Life for us is like it was for the Israelites who, uh, who were living uh, and leaving uh, Egypt. Uh, it's a wilderness. It's a slog through the desert. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews tells us the only way that we are going to get through this desert wilderness is with encouragement. 
there's that little word in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, the Greek word parakaleo. It has the sense of encouragement that comes to us from someone uh, who is wise, giving us wise counsel, that kind of encouragement. This is why, too, elsewhere in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is actually called the paraclete. It's the noun form in the same Greek word family. In English, we translate it counselor. The Holy Spirit is a counselor. The Holy Spirit is an encourager. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. That's the background, the meaning of that word paraclete. And the point is, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we'll never make it through the desert. We will never make it, we talked about this last week, to a place of rest, a place of Sabbath, which is what our soul, our hearts need. We'll never make it there without wise counseling or encouragement that comes, in fact, from God. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it tells us that we need daily encouragement. That's what the writer says, daily encouragement. Why? Let's read it again. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The writer's remembering that earlier time when Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and they are on their journey towards the promised land But instead of meeting their challenges and the various difficulties, uh, the various situations they found themselves in, instead of meeting those situations with faith, instead of encouraging one another to trust God and encouraging one another to depend on God, uh, to believe God will provide for them, what they did is, in fact, they hardened their hearts. They rebelled. They turned away from God. And so we read in Hebrews 3, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. And you see, this is a story that every Israelite knew very well, knew it like the back of their hand. Moses recounts this story. Uh, This is in Exodus 17. Moses says, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And of course, you know, parenthesis here, that's just how it is in the desert. That's, That's the way it is in the wilderness. Water's scarce. Food is not plentiful. Surviving is hard, period. And so what do the people do? Well, they worry. They become anxious. They grumble. They quarrel. They complain. And if we keep reading, it says, so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. The writer of Hebrews uh, writes to people who are asking exactly the same question. You know, is the Lord among us or not? That's their question. And when the Israelites asked that question, I don't know if you noticed But what happened to them? Is the Lord among us or not? And the next thing we read is what? The Amalekites attacked them. (laughs) And the readers ask this question. As they ask this question, they are, of course, persecuted and 
losing their businesses and being ostracized and taking beatings. And even some of them have lost their lives all because they follow Jesus. These are the readers who received this letter uh, from the writer of the book of Hebrews. They're asking the same question. Is the Lord among us or not? They are in a difficult uh, way. They're in a wilderness of their own. The writer reminds them of how the Israelites hardened their hearts. And what he's saying to them is don't be like them. Don't do what they did. They turned away from God. They gave up. They never entered God's promised land. They asked the question, is the Lord among us or not, insinuating that he's not. It's interesting what the writer, I think, of Hebrews doesn't say. You know, what he doesn't say to his readers is, hey, you guys need to shut up. You're fine. You're not in the wilderness. You know, suck it up. He doesn't say that. In fact, he accepts the fact that their life and their circumstances really are challenging. They really are difficult. He accepts that, spiritually speaking, the Israelites before them and the readers that were receiving his letter at present, uh, they, they are all of them in a spiritually very difficult place. Spiritually speaking, they're in a, a desert wilderness. And the truth is, uh, we live in a difficult, challenging, fallen, sinful world where we need to believe, we need to trust, we need to encourage one another daily so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And you know, friends, some people are able to sustain themselves for a while. There's lots of these people. They do this on Facebook all the time. They're able to look like they are winning all of the battles in the wilderness, right? Life is good. Marriage is good. Their job is good. Their kids are good. Their vacations are good. And on the outside, it just looks good. But I'll tell you, on the inside, they're in the wilderness and life is killing them. It's stressful. It's filled with struggle. It's not as satisfying as it looks. There's lots of self-doubt, probably also lots of fear. It's not the land flowing with milk and honey. And the longer you live there without Jesus, without trust, without belief in Almighty God, without the knowledge that somebody someday is going to fix all of this and also what's in here in me. The longer you live without those things, the more deeply disappointed you become, the more cynical you become, the more hardened your heart becomes. Now, don't get me wrong. Lots of good things happen in the wilderness. God actually sees to that. I mean, people fall in love. They get married. They start families. They raise kids. They get good jobs. They, they experience all kinds of good things in the wilderness. And, and that is just true because God, our God, is a good God, whether you know him or not, whether you believe in him or not. This is something theologians refer to oftentimes as just common grace. God dispenses grace to people, whether they acknowledge him, worship him, believe in him or not. Common grace. It's just that without faith in God, without trust in God, without the knowledge that God, our God, is up to something big, even in our fallenness, even in our fallen word, world, without that knowledge, well, then the victories and the achievements and life's best experiences they don't last, they don't matter, and they run right out of our hands a little bit like water runs through our hands. Think Vic Fangio, who once upon a time won three games. 
So what? So what? I read one uh, very happy author who made this observation. He observed that every family, no matter how good, is in the process of scattering and dying off. Wow. It's true, though. <laughs> you know, our children grow up. And oftentimes they move, they scatter, and you're eventually going to die. I don't care how old you are. And you can add to that some more good news. Every beautiful face is slowly growing old and becoming not so beautiful. And every strong body is slowly weakening and decaying. And every quick-witted mind is slowly losing its marbles. This is just a truth about the fallen, decaying world in which we live. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, you need encouragement daily, every day. So that you don't harden your heart like Israel did in their wilderness. The writer recognizes the tendency we have to become cynical. The tendency in us to get bitter. The tendency to stop trusting, stop believing, stop hoping. And I see this sometimes among Christians who are older, kind of in my category, who've battled the wilderness for years and years. They fought for faith. They fought for church. They've extended and advanced the mission. But then stuff happens. Disappointments, misunderstandings, relationships get strained. They get their eyes off Jesus is what happens. And they lose hope. They lose interest. They disconnect. And those parts of your heart that hope for things, often in a situation like that, well, they become hard. And so they become cynical about life and maybe even about themselves, their faith, their God, their church, the mission or the commission. And the only possible way that you can avoid having this happen to you in this fallen world, I think, is you need to be encouraged daily. So the question is, where does that encouragement come from? You know, we are to encourage each other daily, but with what? How? How does that happen? What kind of encouragement exactly is needed? It's interesting to me that as I read this book, the book of Hebrews, I see in it a pattern in the encouragement that the writer offers his readers. It's almost uh, slightly schizophrenic. It goes one way in terms of a type of encouragement he gives them, and then it goes exactly the opposite. It goes another way. I don't know if you've noticed this. One minute the writer is sternly warning his readers about the judgment of God. And the next minute he's tenderly nudging them towards God's amazing mercy and grace found in Jesus. And the pattern runs through the whole book. Let me kind of just show you what I mean. This is going back to Hebrews chapter 3 again. He says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he God angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that we that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. These are stern warnings. Don't be deceived. Keep believing. 
<laughs> but just a few verses later, they're followed with invitations like this. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now it's tender mercy that the writer is putting in front of them. Find grace to help in your time of need. And this happens over and over in this book. Stern warnings coupled with tender mercy. And that really shouldn't surprise us too much because uh, you could probably justifiably say, well, that's kind of indicative of Jesus' whole ministry. Stern warnings, tender mercies. In John 11, Jesus comes to the funeral of one of his best friends, Lazarus. You know this story. And when Jesus gets there, remember, he's greeted by Lazarus' two sister, Mar sisters, Martha and Mary. And Jesus loves these ladies. In fact, in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and uh, her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loves these people. What's interesting is that when each of these sisters comes to Jesus, they both say exactly the same thing to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha says it, and then Mary says it within just a few verses of each other. And to these identical statements made to two grieving sisters, Jesus responds very, very differently. To Martha, who says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus responds by saying, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks her. What I think he's doing, he's challenging Martha with truth. He's challenging her faith. Martha, the situation is not what you think it is. Do you believe in me? Uh, he, he's saying uh, all of this to Martha, but two verses later, Mary comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what does Jesus say? Well, not a word. No challenge. No lesson. And what he does is he asks where they have laid Lazarus, and then he weeps. Why the difference? Well, first, I've got to say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why the difference exactly. Jesus certainly knew why there was a difference. But one thing I think perhaps we see, I, I think, is that Jesus is equally committed to a ministry of truth-telling, but he's also equally committed to a ministry of tears. Connecting with, understanding, entering into the pain and the sorrow and the hurt of Mary. For, for whatever reason, he wanted to pull Martha into his world, which was the truth about himself. Uh, the truth about his life, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he was going to give life to people, even if they died, if they were trusting in him. And so he challenges Martha to think in that moment. But at the same time, he lets Mary pull him, so to speak, into her world of grief and sorrow, and he weeps. And truth is, if you know your own heart, you will know that you cannot survive without both of these things from God, truth and tears. We need truth and tenderness. On the one hand, the prophet uh, Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? He's simply making the point that our hearts are always lying to us, always deceiving us. Our hearts want to keep us, our sinful fallen hearts want to keep us from the truth. 
And so we need to know the truth about ourselves, the truth about the world, the truth about God. We need all these things. James, the brother of Jesus, and I always am intrigued by the fact that this is James, the brother of Jesus, making this observation. Where do you think he got this? <laughs> From growing up with Jesus, that's where he got it. But this is what he says. He says, do not merely listen to the word. I wonder if that was a problem he had once upon a time. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Didn't do him any good. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. We need truth. That's what James is saying. You get truth from the word of God. Who is the word of God? The word of God is Jesus and the revealed word of God. You get truth from the word of God. It's like a mirror. You look at it, it'll tell you who you are. Whether you want to hear that or not, it'll tell you if you'll listen. We need truth. Otherwise, we are deceived. But truth is not all we need. We also need tenderness and mercy and grace and tears. We need someone to understand us and we need someone to weep with us. We need both together. Because you see, truth without tears is brutal. Have you ever been the receiver of that? Somebody's telling you the truth about you and they're loving it. And that just bloodies you. If you hear it, truth without tears is brutal. Sometimes it's just hard to hear truth without tears. But you know what? Tears without truth is just sentimentality. Not very helpful. We need both together. Good counsel or real encouragement is actually a mixture of both. And so the writer of Hebrews knows this perfectly well. And that's why he points his readers and us to Jesus Christ, who is truth and tears together. He says this, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus is the high priest who is able to sympathize. Jesus is the high priest who did and does weep precisely because he was tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus came in the flesh, fully man, fully God. And the fact that he is fully man means he knows firsthand what it means to function in this fallen, sinful, broken world, yet without sin. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because in his life, in his ministry, in his death, he experienced everything. Disappointment, heartache, betrayal, slander, gossip, persecution, rejection, political intrigue, hatred. The list goes on and on. And he experienced those things against the backdrop, remember, of having come from heaven. That's the context. Imagine the contrast there. He came from heaven where he had perfect relationship with his heavenly father and with the Holy Spirit, where it was always love flowing back and forth between the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity. Betrayal? No, never happened. Not in heaven. Disappointment? Never happened. Not in heaven. 
Slander, gossip, not in heaven. But he came from up there down to here and he experienced all of these things in spades. I hope you can appreciate how unique the Christian faith is. It's unique precisely because our God is utterly unique. He is truth and tears. Whether he's casting out demons or cleansing a leper in Mark chapter 1 or healing the paralytic in Mark chapter 2 or making a a shriveled hand whole in Mark chapter 3 or healing Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5 or healing the deaf mute in Mark chapter 7, doesn't matter. It just goes on and on. You read the gospel. The tenderness and the gentleness and the caring of Jesus are right there. He's caring for people that others don't care very much about. But right alongside that is also truth because he's also pissing off all the religious leaders left and right. They want to kill him. They don't like what he says. They don't like who he associates with. They don't like who he chooses to heal. They don't like the fact that he doesn't kill who they want them to kill. You remember the story in John 8, the woman who's caught in adultery? They bring this woman before Jesus. The men are about to stone her. And Jesus deals with these accusers by saying this. He says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And they they skulk away. That's truth telling right there, friends. And if you and I had been there, we'd have had a stone in our hands. We'd have thought, this is entertaining. We're going to get to stone somebody. This doesn't happen very often. And then Jesus speaks truth to that whole group of people. And because it penetrated their heart as only the word of Jesus can, they drop their stones and they skulk away. That's truth telling. But then Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you see that there's truth and tenderness right there together? Do you see that? Jesus really is the wonderful counselor. You know, Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the perfect balance of truth and tenderness. Jesus doesn't say to this woman, I don't condemn you because after all, ah, who knows what sin is anyway. I mean, we've all got issues. He doesn't dismiss her sin as if it didn't exist. He doesn't say, you know what? You are trash. You need to stop sinning right now. I got you out of this jam, but don't ever let this happen again. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say, you know, if you go and sin no more, then maybe I won't condemn you. I'm going to put you on a performance plan, but you need to know I'm watching. I'm watching you. What he says is, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin, which was killing her. And the point is, he wants her performance or he wants her obedience to be motivated by his love and forgiveness for her. Nothing else. And so there it is. It's, it's, it's absolute, complete hatred of sin, but it's also absolute, complete love of the sinner. And that's what I need. That's what you need. Now, how does Jesus do that? In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, it says about Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, this is actually a big deal. This is a theologically important point. And we're going to spend several weeks on this priesthood of Melchizedek, but we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of it this morning. It's an important theological point. In the Old Testament, one thing you never, ever see is a priest who is also a king or a king who is also a priest. There is no human being who combines these two offices into one person. And if you think about that, this makes perfect sense because the king, what is he doing? Well, he's representing God to the people. He enforces the law of God as it relates to the people of God. But a priest, on the other hand, exactly the opposite, representing the people to God. He offered prayers and sacrifices. The priest brings the people into the presence of Almighty God. In a way, the king was the person of truth and the priest was the person of tears. And as we have just seen, we need both. We desperately need both. Now, interestingly, in the Bible, there is this one little mysterious, weird encounter. Way back in Genesis, Abraham has been on a journey. Uh, His uh, nephew Lot had been captured by some kings, and Abraham goes off to rescue him and has a great victory overcoming these foreign kings. On his way home, this king priest named Melchizedek shows up for just a couple of verses, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, and he brings bread and he brings wine and he blesses Abraham and Abraham offers him a tithe, a tenth of all the spoils. It's very unusual. There's no explanation going on here. We're told that he was a priest of God Most High, a king and a priest. King of Salem and priest of God Most High. And the writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer wants us to see that Melchizedek back there in Genesis chapter 14 was actually a foretaste. He was like a type. He was like a shadow signaling someday something better is coming. One who is a king and who is a priest. And that, of course, is Jesus. He is absolutely the embodiment of truth and love. He's the embodiment of law and grace, justice and mercy. He is king and priest forever, it says. Hebrews chapter 5 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect or made mature or made complete, that's the sense of that word, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You see, on the cross, Jesus was king. He was executing justice. He was enforcing the law. But he was also priest. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath, taking God's punishment for our sin upon himself. And so on the cross, you see truth and tears. You see justice. You see grace. They're both there. It's all embodied in one person. And when Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, then neither do I condemn you. Understand what he was saying, of course. He was saying, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. That's what he was saying. And the fact is, friends, the writer of Hebrews wants his readers and wants us today to understand that Jesus has done it all. Everything we need. 
for life, for death, for happiness, for holiness. Jesus has done it all. You know, this letter, you remember, starts out by saying Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Old Testament priests. He's superior to Old Testament kings. Jesus, you see, has done it all. Now, we talked earlier about how we all, uh, Israel in the Old Testament, even us today, how we dwell in a wilderness, in a desert, so to speak, spiritually. Well, Jesus dwelt there, too. In fact, it's not a coincidence that before he began his public ministry, how long did he spend in the wilderness? Do you remember? 40 days. While he was in the wilderness, he was being tempted by Satan. Yet without sin. He knows exactly what it's like to be abandoned by the Father. To pray and not get the answer you want when you want it. I find it really interesting in Hebrews 5, 7, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And that would, of course, would be his heavenly father. The heavenly father could save him from death. Father, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He prayed a prayer asking if there's any way, God, let this cup pass from me. But God the Father let Jesus die. Jesus did not get what he prayed for when he prayed for it. Jesus stayed on the cross. That was his decision. I'm going to stay on the cross. He drank the Father's cup of wrath. He went into the tomb as well, a dead man. I'd say that's being in the wilderness. And he did all of that for you. And all of that for me. What I want us to kind of embrace this morning is just that when we are in a wilderness, things are happening that we don't understand. That's to be expected. Our prayers seem to go unanswered. That's to be expected. God seems to not be present. That's not unusual. That's not unique. That's the way the first readers of this letter felt. But the writer reminds them and us, even though you might feel that way in a particular moment, in a particular place in the wilderness, keep trusting God. Keep believing. Keep holding. Holding on to him, not just because, you know, he's smart or not just because he knows what's best, but because this God is both king and priest forever. You see, he came, he lived among us, with us, he suffered, he died. And in the end, you understand, we understand his suffering was wholly, completely, fully redemptive. It accomplished exactly God's purpose, what God wanted to have happen. It it, it furthered the work of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. In, In fact, in the end, we see that God did hear Jesus' prayer because Jesus comes out of the tomb back to life. It just didn't happen before the cross. And, um, Hebrews 5, 7 says he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus kept believing. Jesus kept trusting. Jesus kept holding on. Jesus knew what God was up to and wanted to be a part of what God was up to. You need to know that when you are in the wilderness, God is hearing your prayers. He's answering your prayers. No is one answer because sometimes your prayers are dumb. 
So are mine. They're wrong. <laughs> Thank you, God, for delivering us from terrible prayers. Sometimes it's wait, not yet. That's what his answer was to Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver you out of the tomb. I'm going to bring you back to life. Death cannot contain you. Just not right now. Not, not at this moment. It's going to be a few days. You see. God hears our prayers. Even though sometimes it feels like he doesn't. We have to realize that God is using and going to use whatever our circumstances are. Good, bad, ugly, suffering, uh, whatever it is in the wilderness. God is using that. That is the confidence that a follower of Jesus has. That's, that's the same confidence that people who follow Jesus went into the Colosseum with. Where did that lead? Well, to their death. But God, God was at work. God was actually going to bring an empire to its knees by letting people see how Christians can suffer and endure and pray and love. The point is God is always using anything and everything if we open ourselves up to God. He's using them in redemptive, constructive kinds of ways. That's just the truth. That's who our God is. That's what our God does in Jesus who is a king and a priest. Both. And so the point is, keep believing, keep trusting, keep knowing that our God is a king and a priest. He is truth. He is also tears. And that's how he encourages us daily as we draw near to him. You know, uh, this is the verse everybody memorizes pretty early on in their Christian life. And, uh, it, it's, but but it's, there's a reason for that. It's a great verse. It's so vitally important to our faith and to the lives that we live. And that's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, he says. We just know this because he's a king and he's a priest. Because he came, he lived, he died, but he rose again. You see, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. Even in the wilderness, friends. Even in the wilderness, God works for the good of those who love him. That's all we're going to bite off this morning, but that's enough. Go think on that as the Broncos do not play this afternoon. We have a reprieve from the mayhem. Our God is always up to something, something good. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this king who is a priest. This one who speaks truth with clarity, but also weeps with us. We thank you for the life, the ministry, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that we can worship you now. We pray in his name. Amen.